Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Coming up, you're going to hear my conversation with Adam Thurer, senior scholar at the Mercatus Center and author of the new book, Evasive Entrepreneurs and the Future of Governance, How Innovation Improves Economics and Governments. Adam's book was published in May of 2020, and that is when we talked. And while we talk about themes in his book that are evergreen or always relevant, we also talk about how his commitment to permissionless innovation is especially relevant in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. So what stands in the way of entrepreneurship and innovation today? What can we do to address those obstacles and why is it so important that we do it? Here's Adam Thier on what it means to be an evasive entrepreneur and how that improves the quality of governance overall. And I hope you'll stick around after our discussion to get some ideas about conversation starters that you might use with your friends and family to talk about these issues. So the book is called Evasive Entrepreneurs and the Future of Governance, How Innovation Improves Economies and Governments. And I know it's very much in keeping with your research and other books that you've written and, and your work, but let's, let's start a little more broadly. What is, I'm, I'm intrigued by when you talk about entrepreneurs and creation and innovation and the importance of that to human flourishing and how we maybe get better at allowing that and recognizing that and encouraging that. What's, what's like the ideal world for Adam? How do people behave? Um, how do people work? That kind of thing. When you think about that, what would be, what would be the best possible scenario for you? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And the focus of all of my work over the 30 years I've been covering uh, technology and innovation policy has been trying to find a way to broaden the horizons of innovative dynamism and finding new opportunities to unlock the creative potential of the, not only the American people, but citizens of the world. And in the last 10 years, I've really focused in on what are the policy impediments to achieving that goal? Because I really do believe that more than almost anything else in our modern world, Technological innovation moves the needle on progress and human flourishing in a really profound way, in ways that we often take for granted, unfortunately. And it's really important to understand that if we don't allow for more opportunities for innovative dynamism and entrepreneurialism to be unlocked, then we're probably going to hold back human progress more generally in many different ways. So we really have to ask ourselves, what does this mean for public policy? How can we change public policy for the better to, again, expand those horizons of innovative freedom and uh, get more innovation? And this is why in my last book, I put a phrase on it to talk about what we really needed was permissionless innovation. And by extension, my new book is, to, is discussing how so-called evasive entrepreneurs, essentially people who put permissionless innovation into action or practice, are really starting to change things and change things, I think, for the better, not just for themselves, their families, their businesses, whatever else, but also I argue for governments and society that ultimately innovation is a, is a very useful way of not just producing new, better gizmos and gadgets and services. It's also an important way of keeping public policies in line with common sense and the consent of the government. It's a way to sort of have a, a relief valve, if you will, or a, a check on government to say, hey, are we doing okay? Does this make sense? And I think a lot of people are realizing a lot of our public policies, unfortunately, don't make sense or don't serve the purpose they were put on the books to achieve. Innovation can help us find those policies and hopefully freshen them up. Yeah, so I think this point about permissionless innovation, I wonder if there are people out there who hear that. I mean, one, let's, let's talk a little bit about what that means. But I think a lot of people think, hey, we live in a pretty free society. People get to innovate, there's entrepreneurs all over. A lot of them are our heroes, right? Um, I think both it's important for people to recognize that there are barriers to innovation and creativity. And you also, it's not just sort of a public policy issue. I mean, you think this is a moral issue as well. And I think that's extremely important. But can you talk about the ways in which we need to have a freer 
landscape for innovation? I mean, what are the kinds of things that are actually stopping people from innovating? Sure, I'd be happy to talk about that. I, I think it's first important just to, to define our terms and specifically to say what permissionless innovation means and what it doesn't mean. Specifically, what it doesn't mean is it, it doesn't mean anarchy. It doesn't mean we have no rules, no government. Um, we absolutely need the rule of law and, and good sound government institutions to have an innovative, prosperous society. On the other hand, all too often, many, especially older archaic rules and regulations, just hold back the potential for people to do Im important things and sometimes just common sense things. We've really seen this in the wake of the COVID crisis. So to get to your question about like, what are the barriers? Well, what's most interesting to me about the COVID crisis is the fact that governments themselves have been admitting quite often how misguided many old public policies are or how they've held back common sense responses. And they've been sunsetting or at least suspending or pausing a great many rules and regulations because they've held back sensible responses to the COVID outbreak. Um, I'll just give you a couple of really simple examples. I mean, there have been things like uh, regulations, really meticulous regula regulations governing things like face masks and hand sanitizers. And a lot of people were saying like, well, gee, I, I can help make face masks or I can help make hand sanitizers. And yet they were immediately confronted with just reams of red tape and regulations that were almost impenetrable and, and indecipherable. And yet they said, well, why can't we do this? It just makes sense, right? Why, why can't we help? In, in many areas, uh, doctors and hospitals put out calls almost immediately for help in terms of finding ways to build or mo uh, modify breathing machines to, to make ventilators. And people who using 3D printers and open source blueprints were able to step forward and help and say, hey, we can help do this using old machineries married up with new uh, fabricated technologies. The problem is, is that there are all sorts of rules and regulations that says you're, you can't do that. And so those are just a few examples, but I, I will tell you this in terms of sheer numbers, there is an organization called Americans for Tax Reform that's been monitoring all of the rules that have been sunset or paused in the wake of the COVID outbreak. And their running list is now up over 600 rules and regulations mm -hmm. that federal, state, and local governments have paused or sunset in the wake of this crisis. And what's amazing about that, Jennifer, is that that's a, that's a tacit admission by government that rules that were put in place with the very best of intentions in mind ultimately did not deliver. Yeah. And so it took innovative acts by average people to wake them up to the reality that maybe there's a better and different and sensible way of doing things that maybe aren't perfectly in compliance with yesterday's old archaic rule book. And that's the kind of example I talk about again yeah. and again and again in my book that we, we should appreciate as being improving government institutions and rules. Again, not eliminating them. Right, Just right. Saying like what makes sense and what doesn't, let's get it back in line with the common sense and, and the sort of consent of the governed. Yeah, this, this to me is an interesting idea of talking about common sense public policy because I think for a lot of people, they may say, yeah, I think entrepreneurs are great. They're doing great work. I, I assume they can go out and, you know, do the things that um, help them bring us things like Uber and that. But, but your examples in COVID-19 are, are very specific and useful as well. Um, but I don't, you know, I can imagine people saying, I don't know about common sense, whether I trust, especially these days, whether people trust the government to put common sense public policy in place. So tell me if this is a, kind of an accurate timeline when you're thinking about evasive entrepreneurship, right? So the evasive entrepreneur, this is, an, this is someone who uses uh, especially technology to innovate, to create. And the evasive piece, because evasive sounds pejorative, but what you're saying, I think, is let's imagine these 600 uh, guidelines and rules that are in place that, that actually hinder not just creativity, but hinder responses to needs in the midst of this crisis, but in days where there's no crisis, right? Um, you know, that would still be the case. We just not, might not be as aware of it. And that person uses technology, um, a 3D printer maybe, uses technology to meet these needs, but in doing so has actually violated some of these guidelines or these policies and regulations. And, and your argument is, we need to give those people some leeway, not just because 
there is a fundamental human need for that creation and innovation, innovation that helps people flourish, but also because it's a check and balance on government. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and ba basically, I, I begin the book by arguing that the freedom to innovate is important not only because it expands opportunities for economic growth and human flourishing, but precisely because it helps us identify ways to improve government policies and institutions. That's the, the thesis and the subthesis of the book. And I then go on to try to provide an empirical accounting of exactly why we've seen so much more evasiveness, if you will, by entrepreneurs in recent years. And then also provide a normative defense of it and say, look, a, a lot of this actually makes sense. Innovators and entrepreneurs, eventually they get fed up of not being able to understand the law, not being able to navigate the law, and, and really trying hard to figure out how to just do simple things to earn a living and provide for their own family or communities or help others. Mm -hmm. And yet, unfortunately, all too often, rules and regulations thwart those efforts. I, I give the example in the book, and it will be a controversial one to some, but uh, there's certainly a lot to be said about the sharing economy example and specifically about ride sharing. And in so many ways, Uber and Lyft and ride sharing are sort of the paradigmatic example of evasive entrepreneurialism. Now, Uber has gotten itself in a lot of trouble, and it's been a pariah to many in recent years. But let's think about the world prior to 2010. And when it came to ride sharing or transportation uh, options in most uh, areas, you really didn't have many. You had a very, very heavily regulated situation that was sort of the worst case of crony capitalism imaginable. You had uh, taxi cab companies in cahoots with uh, local municipal regulators or taxi cab commissions who were basically just working together to keep out competition and choice. And amazingly, for the better part of about seven decades, I argue, we had consensus on the left and the right among economists, lawyers, political scientists, that this whole situation just stunk. It was an anti-consumer fiasco. And we had many different administrations, again, Democratic and Republican, saying reforms were needed and nothing ever got done. And then all of a sudden, 2010, Uber and Lyft come along in very short succession and everything changes almost overnight. How did that happen? It happened because those ride-sharing companies and others pushed back against legal norms that said, thou shall not. You shall not offer competition or choice without going through all these hoops and loops and getting all these permission slips. The problem was that they knew there was no way to win. That racket was rigged. Yeah. And so finally, they just started offering choices. And so I talk about the, that issue and like how it played out, but I also ask hard questions about the morality of it. Yeah. I mean, because at the time, there were very few defenders. You would say, is it right that they do this? No, they should go seek public change the right way. Well, everybody that tried before failed. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a funny point that I talk about many times over in the book, that it's easy to defend entrepreneurialism after, after the fact. Yeah. But it's challenging and sometimes almost unheard of to defend it while it's happening, especially the more evasive it is, challenging traditional rules and regulations. And that's an interesting moral conundrum to sort of grapple with, like who will defend the innovators when they're innovating? Yeah. Since while it's, when it's happening, it's sometimes considered almost a form of heresy. It yeah. must be stopped. Yeah, I mean, I, I am interested in that because there's this piece of it where I think, um, and, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this. I mean, when, when I read it and I read your work on entrepreneurs and about innovation, there is this, it's not that it's, it's an, you know, unreasonable appreciation of them, but it's this thing that says, look, these people are very importantly heroes in the way they solve problems, uh, in, the, in the way that they allow others to flourish, not just themselves, right? They take risks to the extent that they know that they are being evasive, that they are um, going around rules or trying to get around rules. I, I think we, we have to ask that question, right? Well, like, how do we make sure that we can protect that without having anarchy where anybody can do whatever they want? Right? Yeah, absolutely. That, that, and that's a, it's a question I struggle with. I mean, my background, I start out life as a philosopher and dealing with, uh, with these issues. And, and, and I really do struggle with them in the book. Uh, I have several chapters where I talk about this and say it's tough to know where that line is. Um, because again, as all innovation historians have documented, 
throughout history, innovation has been seen as heretical or, you know, yeah. uh, against the, against the norms of the, 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 the good or whatever. And, and then it happens and we're like, no, this is good. This is what we yeah. want. It's the, yeah. we, we adjust our baseline, our moral baselines and frames sort of change as innovation changes our way of thinking about the world. Yeah. And, and, and that's happened again and again. Now, I, I want to go back to an important distinction you made, Jennifer, about like people who may know that they're doing this and may not know that yeah. they're doing this. So the better way to put, uh, to describe what Uber and Lyft and Airbnb uh, were doing is regulatory entrepreneurialism. They were essentially setting out to, to make policy change an active part of their business model. And to go ahead and confront laws and regulations head on in the hope of changing them through their marketplace actions. So they were regulatory entrepreneurs. But there are other evasive entrepreneurs who, in some cases, don't even know they're breaking the law. They don't even know they're coming up against social or legal norms. I, I, yeah, I, you know, when I was reading about this, I kept thinking about Harvey Silverglade's book about three felonies a day, how most of us violate some federal law every day without even knowing it because there's so many out there. Absolutely. And, you know, I talk about some really fun examples in the book, things like um, the cottage food industry or home food entrepreneurs. And they're often just uh, in many cases like um, moms who have a, a secondary income, maybe from like selling some baked goods at local community centers or out of their own home or online. Um, or how about the food truck world and how that exploded or, or you know, community food uh, developments. And then you talk about micromobility and things like things like, uh, you know, electric scooters and the various types of things that developed there. I talk about things that have been happening with 3D printing and amazing innovations happening with like 3D printed medical devices, like 3D printed prosthetics or 3D printed orthodontics and stuff. Again, some of these you're worried like, oh, my gosh, well, you know, could people hurt themselves or could, you know, could there be, you know, dangers? And that's why we have laws, right, for public health and safety rationales. But the funny thing is when most people innovate in these spaces, they don't even realize they're up against laws and regulations at the federal and state level, right? And it raises this really interesting philosophical question is like, what's the morality of breaking the law when you don't know it's the law? Yeah. <laughs> if you're just trying to sell a big good you made in your home and, or maybe even give it away, not to even sell it which raises another layer of this. Like what happens when this is non-commercial household innovation? I mean, and, we've, and, we've had people on about occupational licensing um, from IJ and from uh, Pacific Legal. And I think people are always surprised when they hear about some of the occupational licensing, you know, regulations. Like why do they even exist? How could somebody have thought it was, it was problematic? You know, the most extreme example, I think, is the florist, right? What right. does a florist need, you know? A license for so yeah I mean how do you and it sounds to me like what you are saying in the book um, and you're citing a lot of people talking about this is when it comes to technology technology and the capabilities we get from technology and the change in technology way outstrips government's ability to even maybe put these regulations in place in the way that they can with stuff with food um, with occupational licensing that kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. And I also basically say that it should hopefully force us to have a conversation about good governance and how we can freshen up public policies to just make them more sensible. Um, uh, Philip Howard is uh, someone who's written quite eloquently about these issues, and he's got books like The Rule of Nobody and, more importantly, a book called The Death of Common Sense. And F Philip Howard is someone probably generally left of center, and there's a lot of people uh, like this on all sides of the political spectrum who basically just say, like, look, why can't we just occasionally sort of hit a reset button on government or have a spring cleaning of sorts? Yeah. And this is something I argue for not only in this book, but in a lot of my recent writing and in a new report that I've just done advocating uh, the idea of a fresh start initiative to sort of do these periodic resets. Again, I want to make very, very clear. This is not a call for no government. This is not a call for anarchy. This is a call for good government. This is a call for getting government back in line with common sense. How do you do that? Well, you have to have a reassessment. You have to have a chance to sit down and say, what works and what doesn't? What the COVID crisis did and what evasive entrepreneurialism does more generally even before and during the COVID crisis is forces that conversation. It basically says, well, there's no more waiting. That technological change is moving fast enough and empowering people in a more democratized, decentralized way that it's going to force that conversation. And I say, good. 
I say that's the conversation we should have been having all along for a lot of different reasons I go to in chapters uh, five and, uh, and six of the book. We haven't been having those conversations. We have a lot of what people call demosclerosis in our government institutions, a chronic inability to adapt. And what is going to change this? And I argue innovation probably yeah. more than anything else will. And that's a good thing. Yeah. I think about, um, we probably should, we're not supposed to talk about Louis C.K. anymore, but I always think about that old thing where he talked about everything's amazing and nobody's happy, right? The example right. of the guy who's on the airplane who finds out that there's Wi-Fi available on airplanes, but it's not working. So something he didn't even know existed 10 seconds ago, he's really upset that he doesn't right. have now. But when it comes to these kind of innovations, and when it comes to seeing in the midst, for instance, of the COVID-19 crisis, that someone can adapt what they're doing and very quickly respond to, you know, it's a need, but it's, it's a, a market demand, right? That it forces us to say, that's a good thing and we should allow it. And we should ask why we had these regulations in the first place. I mean, are you optimistic that list of 600 things that have been rolled back um, or suspended uh, in the crisis are, are going to go away because we do have those conversations? Or are you at all worried that, well, we get past whatever getting past the coronavirus is and return to some kind of normalcy, and all of a sudden we're just back to letting that stuff re-enter our <laughs> regulatory you know, landscape? That is a wonderful question, Jennifer. And, and as I just alluded to a moment ago, it's the focus of the, a new report I've done with some of my colleagues at the Mercatus Center uh, advocating the idea of a so-called fresh start initiative or set of initiatives whereby we would actually create a, a process and a body that basically reassesses the wisdom of all of these rules and regulations that have been sunsetted in the wake of the crisis. I mean, again, I just want to reiterate how important this is that governments themselves have identified the rules that are problematic. They have given us the list. This is not some crazy wild-eyed libertarian fever dream of like saying, let's just burn all these things. Out. These are No, look, this is government saying that our rules have failed us in the public interest. Okay, great. Now we have a chance to study them. Let's take all of those rules. Let's have experts take a look at which of them made sense and which didn't. And oh, by the way, we can do kind of almost an A-B comparison now. You know, what was the effect of these rules before and then after they were suspended? You know, was public health or welfare affected negatively? Or maybe it was affected positively. Maybe we got more innovation and, and, and interesting things happened we couldn't have envisioned. That's a chance to study and then maybe do that reset button move. What's the reset button move? Well, what we propose in the paper is the idea of building on something known as the BRAC Commission model. The BRAC Commission was the base realignment and closure commission that was set up in the wake of the Cold War to deal with the fact that there were tons of military bases all over America during the Cold War. Most of them after the Cold War was ending weren't really needed, but not a single congressman or woman in the world was ever going to vote against a base in their own district. Right, because it goes against their own, you know. Because it's a pork barrel thing, right? They yeah. deliver money and jobs back home. Hey, even. look, I put people out of business, yeah. Right. So in one of the strokes of, uh, uh, one of the most brilliant strokes of genius in terms of institutional design mechanism, um, policymakers came up with this idea of a BRAC commission that would basically bundle all of the, the, the bases together, study them all, figure out which ones were actually needed for security purposes and which ones weren't, and then have a conspicuous vote by Congress, thumbs up or thumbs down, on the entire package of reforms. And that gave policymakers a way, sort of almost a get-out-of-jail-free card with their electorate, to say, right. like, hey, look, I wanted to support our district back home, but you know what? It was part of a big proposal, and everybody's oxes got gored here, and so I just had to go along yeah. with it, but I certainly wouldn't have voted against it if I could have. It worked. It yeah. worked. We cleaned yeah. up that mess fairly effectively. What if we have the same model, sort of a BRAC commission for bad rules? basically bundle together a bunch of these policies and say up or, thumbs up or thumbs down, we either reform or sunset these things together all at once because you yourself, government, said these things weren't working. Yeah. And that could be applied at the federal level and it could be applied even more importantly at the state level with things like occupational licensing laws or cert certificate of need laws or other restrictions on innovative dynamism. So in the case of the base closings and, and getting rid of all of these things from the Cold War, the, the constituents there are the people who live in those districts, who work at those bases, whose businesses benefit by having those bases there. What's the parallel in this case? Who are the constituents or the stakeholders who are going to not like 
the idea of getting rid of these rules? Yeah, that's a great question, Jennifer. And, and, and the answer is it's a varied group of constituencies, and that's why it'll be very challenging to pursue these reforms. It's why right now we can't get any reforms, because special interests always have a stronghold on the committees and lawmakers and, and regulatory institutions that have established and defend those laws. And then they, too, a special interest who benefit from, from them, work in cahoots with them to make sure that they never get reformed. And so this has become, again, a chronic problem in our government. And you can think about things like occupational licensing laws and how we've had so many troubles at the state level, including with truly asinine things, like you cited the example of flower arranging. I mean, there, there's licensing for like furniture, like interior design, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in the most amazing moment of the COVID crisis that I can think of, um, someone in New Hampshire, uh, which is a fairly libertarian state, someone asked the, uh, the head of the uh, barbershop board, whatever, uh, hairstyling board, um, and yes, even New Hampshire has one, asked her, um, is it okay that everybody is cutting their hair at home or cutting loved ones hair at home? And amazingly, she couldn't say yes or no. She couldn't come up with an answer. She's like, well, I don't know if our rules really make it clear, you know, what the policies are. And they're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Are you kidding me that we live in a world where we can't figure out that it's okay to cut your own hair or your loved one's hair at home when nobody else is open to do it? And that's an example of how, you know, obviously there have been some barbershops and others who benefited from this, but we would benefit from reassessing those rules. And hopefully this is a chance for, you know, sensible public policy reform to happen and overcome the political, you know, uh, barriers to it. Um, precisely because we get an institutional design mechanism that sort of bundles like these reforms together and said, look, let's just thumbs up, thumbs down, get this done. And, and let's be clear, we can always put rules back on the books, yeah, yeah. right? If you yeah. sunset something, it doesn't mean it goes away forever necessarily. Yeah. I propose in my book the idea of what I call the sunsetting imperative for new technologies. I basically just say, look, any new related uh, emerging technology related policies should be sunset every couple of years, basically in line with what's called Moore's Law. Uh, the power of semiconductors double about every two years and price falls in half. Moore's law viciously governs competition in the world of the digital, modern digital economy. All businesses and entrepreneurs have to reinvent their, their business models and find new ways to appeal to consumers every two years. And they have to change or sunset their own business models or, 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 or find new ideas. That never happens to government. Yeah. It never happens to government. Why not? That is like the most commonsensical thing you do is just say, every couple of years we ought to reassess these things. And we never do. It's set it and forget it, government. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think nonprofits uh, are the same way. We look at things and we say, well, this is kind of working or it seems to be working or nobody's complaining. Uh, and so there's no customer that's forcing you to make those adjustments in the way that a business has to, right? The business has to be responsive to the customer's needs. The, the business has to be responsive to the customer's needs so long as they can't resort to the protection of some government yes. policies that would shield them from those pressures, right? right? Like occupational and, licensing. Exactly, and, right. So those yeah. interior designers or hairdressers or flower arrangers that benefit from these things, they don't want to see them go away because at the end of the day, they can just fall back on them and say, well, we don't need to adjust. We could just go back and plead for more protection. This again, this is exactly what happened for taxis and transportation industry before we had the sharing economy. They yeah. did that for 70 years. I never was in a single clean, you know, courteous cab ride in my life of 30 years in Washington, D.C. before we had Uber and Lyft in town. Yeah, yeah, no, it's totally true. And you're, it does change the consumer's expectations as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. And it also does something else that's important, Jennifer. It converts us into sort of what I call in the book sort of citizen lobbyists. We basically yeah. start working with innovators to say, look, we like, we, we've tasted these waters of choice and competition. We don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to stinky hot cabs where I was, you know, verbally abused when I got in and out. And, you know, that's something that I think is important that we talk about in the sort of moral calculus, because not only has it improved consumer welfare, but it has changed our, our sort of expectations of excellence from the business community. Right? We, and then we demand the protection of that kind of innovation, right? So I, I hope we do. I, I mean, hope we do. Yeah. There, yeah. There are cases, I suppose, um, we, we've talked about Uber, I know. Uh, I'm trying to think, and I don't know the specifics of it well enough, where a municipality says, look, we're not going to allow Uber to operate here, largely because of the, the lobbying efforts of, you know, the taxi cab, the associations, that sort of thing. Uh, and people stand up to that. 
Yes. In most cases, yes. There have been some notable exceptions. I talk about in the book a few cities that went the other way and, and kept ride sharing services out of town and also have kept micromobility options off the, off the sidewalks. And there are a variety of reasons for that. Um, but generally speaking, when, it, when people have already tasted a little freedom, they don't like giving it up tasted yeah. some choice. They don't yeah. want to go back. So I am very confident, and this is what I talk about, why evasive entrepreneurialism is really important. It's not about getting rid of law altogether. Yeah. It's about changing the, the dynamic of political discourse over innovation and entrepreneurialism, about giving more green lights to innovation and innovators rather than red lights. Yeah. And that is an essential part of unlocking more and better ways of doing things to benefit the public. So it's, it's the erring on the side of let's allow more ability to innovate. Let's take, let's allow some risk taking here. Absolutely. It's not anarchy. You're really clear about that. It's not anarchy. It's not anything goes. Um, although I think that's a tricky sort of um, balance to strike, right? I mean, if I'm, if I'm an entrepreneur or I'm somebody who's innovating, um, I'm going to argue, in fact, I want to go back to something that's in the book. It's very early on in the introduction, uh, which, and I kind of love the way you put it, evasive entrepreneurialism is evasive entrepreneurialism is not so much about evading law altogether as it is about trying to get interesting things done, demonstrating a social or an economic need for new innovations in the process, and then creating positive leverage for better results when politics inevitably becomes part of the story. So it's about trying to get interesting things done, demonstrating a social or an economic need for new innovations in the process. Part of why that, that phrase struck out to me or stuck out to me, I think, was as I was reading it, I thought, and that sounds like part of that sounds like something my 15 year old would say when they get in trouble for something like, hey, I'm doing something for the better here, you know, I'm doing something for, for, to improve all of our lives. Like, how do you balance that? Because I do think people are going to say there are certain examples where it's probably less likely to be at issue. I mean, I remember one of the he's a venture capitalists who declined to invest in Airbnb, right? And his thing was somebody's going to get killed in the midst of this, right? And, and he lost out on that investment. But there are some things that you might look at and say, yeah, well, I mean, let's let those people, you know, have a wide berth to, to adjust here or to try things and take risks and to create and innovate. But then there's some stuff, man, I don't know, man. I don't know that letting people stay in other people's houses, you could see that with Uber, you know, total strangers driving people around, even though that is kind of what's happening with taxi cabs too. How do you, how do you figure out where the line is mm -hmm. to say, we're going to red light this? Yeah, it's a great question. I've struggled with it in my last book on permissionless innovation. And in this new one, in chapters seven and eight, I spent a lot of time thinking through what we mean by technological risk and harm. And it's very, very clear that new technologies and even old ones can raise serious potential dangers for society. But of course, not all risks are equal. And I think part of the problem with the modern discourse from a lot of technology critics is they try to convert everything into a quote unquote existential risk. And they're always talking about uh, in, in almost sort of dystopian dreadish kind of terms like the, the, the sort of end times are near because of technology X, Y, or Z. And I point out in the book that look, not everything can be an existential risk. I mean, ex existential base root word of his, his existence. <laughs> not right. everything, not everything right. is a world ender, right? Yep. Yep. And, and something like Uber and Lyft and then a lot of the other innovations I talk about in the book, they're, they're just not on that level. But I do talk about in the book the ones that are. I, I've spent a lot of time thinking through really hard questions like killer robots, yeah. you know, autonomous yeah. systems run amok. Um, there certainly are some very serious dangers associated with advanced medical device innovation and the strange, bizarre world of biohacking and, and sort of citizen, uh, consumer, citizen consumer medicine. Yeah. Um, this is a, a major focus of chapter two of the book. Um, but I point out that in almost every instance, we probably already have a governance framework that can help us deal with some of these harms, whatever they may be, including the extreme ones. 
I spend a lot of time, again, talking about things like killer robots and sort of advanced uh, chemical fabrication and things like this later in the book. And I say, like, look, we already have a nuclear nonproliferation treatment, chemical weapons treaties, uh, a variety of international control mechanisms to try to deal with serious technological harms associated with those sorts of technological capabilities. Now, we can talk about the effectiveness of those mechanisms, but we already have frameworks. Likewise, we already have frameworks to deal with lesser potential harms, things like consumer welfare and uh, anti-consumer uh, fraud statutes, you know, uh, you know uh, unfair and deceptive practices. We have lawsuit activity. We have, you know, tortious uh, claims that can be made against people when harms are created. And yes, we still have regulatory agencies. In fact, you will not find anywhere in my book the advocacy for any single agency I discuss being abolished. Yeah. In fact, that's partly driven by pragmatism. I just don't think they will be yeah. abolished. Yeah. There's some claims that could be made against some of them that they probably should go or should be sweep, reformed in a sweeping way, but I don't make that, that, that effort here. I basically say, let's try to realign our policies to be more in line with basically what are legitimate harms uh, of the severity that some people claim, and let's make sure that the rest of it can just happen, that we can greenlight innovation. Um, it, it, again, it's tricky. I mean, yeah. you can make an argument about uh, hairdressers and barbershops and say, they got scissors in their hands. They can <laughs> cut somebody wide open. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. So could somebody with a shovel work in a construction job or, you know, any number of other people who work with power tools. And, yeah. you know, it, it, we have to have some sensible uh, policies governing these things and understand that there's almost always a better way to skin the cat than to have a preemptive precautionary risk averse regulatory regime that says thou shall not and mother may I permission slips in front of everything. We have to allow some of that trial and error and then figure out what really is the biggest problem that we need more law to address. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when it comes to something that's very new that, I mean, technology, especially in a way, it's the great equalizer, even absent that regulatory framework, there's no reason to think someone who is an elected or appointed official has a better ability to assess those risks than the rest of us, right? I mean, they may have more experience working in a framework that's making those assessments. But I think it's not the case that um, they, they have some special monopoly on knowledge about things that none of us know anything about, right? I think that's a, that's a great point, Jennifer. And, I, and, and let's, let's, let me illustrate this with an example for something I, I spent a lot of time covering uh, as a tech analyst today, which is autonomous systems and specifically driverless cars. And here's an example of how we have to think through risk trade-offs because it clearly is the case that a driverless car, which is essentially a, a computer on wheels that's driving us down the road, could raise serious risks and potential harms. On the other hand, Every single day in the United States, 6,500 people are injured and 100 people die due to human error behind the wheel. 94% of all accidents, according to government statistics, are attributable to human error, drowsiness, drunkenness, distraction, whatever else. I have to believe that autonomous systems will eventually do a better job than that because the death toll associated with humans behind a wheel has been staggering. And I really do believe that the biggest public health success story of our lifetimes will be when we make this transition to a fully driverless autonomous world. Because when you're talking about the numbers I cited, in the aggregate, you're talking about 30, 40,000 people every year dying in the United States and the numbers overseas are even worse. So how do you frame these risk trade-offs, right? There's harm on both sides. Yeah. But there's clearly enormous benefits associated with allowing for a little bit of risk taking with these new driverless systems to potentially cut down on the number of human related fatalities associated with human error behind the wheel. And so that only happens by experimentation. Yeah. You have to be willing to take that leap, though, and, and allow for more of it before we can get it. I, I heard somebody who works in that area talking on a podcast one time, and what he said was the question we're going to be asking ourselves in the future isn't the question of, is it, is it right, should we um, have autonomous driving? It's gonna be, should we allow people to not use autonomous driving? Should we, because of those statistics you describe, in fact, I believe uh, that will happen in my lifetime. I'm 51 years old, but I'm always joking with my teenage kids who are just now driving. Like, there's going to be a day where I'm going to be that old coot just fighting, you know, like, you'll, you'll have to pry the steering wheel out of my cold, dead hands yeah, totally. because I, I love driving. Yeah. I love driving. I have a little sports car, and I've always enjoyed driving a lot. But you know what? 
there'll be a really good argument for getting this old man off the road eventually with okay. failing eyes and failing senses and failing abilities. We, we never do this. People often ask me, you know, hey, you're the guy who wrote the book on permissionless innovation. Don't you believe there's anything we probably should regulate more? And I'm like, yeah, probably driving. <laughs> <laughs> probably which, driving. Which is something that is so, so central to our sense of, I think, freedom, right? Yeah, I mean, I have absolutely. Friends from, That's why we don't regulate it. Yeah, totally. Because it's about human freedom, and especially in America, it's about our freedom to explore and travel. And these things are sacrosanct to us. And yeah. I get it. That's me. It's, it's, it's in my blood. All I wanted to do when I was growing up in rural Illinois and Indiana is get my car and go, go places. And I did. And it was wonderful. Yep. But you know what? When I was a teenager, I was probably a danger to others on the road. And now that I'm getting old, I'm probably a danger to others on the road again. <laughs> Luckily, I just had really wonderful eye surgery. Thanks to the miracles of modern uh, medical innovation. It totally changed my life. Yeah. I, was, I was almost functionally blind a year ago. Yeah. time. I had early onset cataracts. And I, I basically have bionic eyes now. I had two new lenses put in, and I have, I have the vision now of a hawk. That's awesome. It's like 2015. I mean, it's great. And, and this was just not possible in the past. But even then, I'm still like, uh, you know, driving, there probably needs to be more uh, guideposts or, or, or regulations. We don't give people enough driving tests in this country, in my opinion. Um, so that's an example of risk trade-offs, right? Yeah. It's an yeah. example of where there's, there's harm on both sides and we're trying to weigh which direction to go. What I argue in my books is that you'll only get the answer to that by allowing more trial and error experimentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's turn, if we can, and if, if you're kind of comfortable talking about this, I want to think about because you talk about, you know, those 600 um, regulations you were talking about earlier, that somebody had a reason or thought it was a good thing. A lot of times it's not that there's some nefarious body out there putting in regulations, although I'm going to I'm going to at least make an exception for like the um, florists association that might be somewhat nefarious. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but it's they're they're well-intentioned uh, things we we want to we want to think about how we get common sense in public policy and not have it come to the point where we need a crisis to show us that we need to be we need to allow a little more leeway on these things green light more things mm -hmm. i think that the COVID-19 crisis, and I would say as well what's going on now in the country with the protests over the death of George Floyd, I think a lot of these things together are saying to people, look, the government's not going to solve your problems for you, right? They can't solve your problems. And it may create problems that you didn't even anticipate, or it may even, you know, there's an argument that systematically causes problems. Um, do you think that those kinds of things happening, uh, as tragic as all of these things are, do you think they make it more likely that people are open to holding back a little bit on regulation, the, the distrust? Will that help? I, I, I hope so. I at least hope that it opens more people's eyes to the idea that maybe government could be regulating better or differently. And that many of the things that government does today, it probably isn't doing particularly well. And maybe there's somebody else who could do it better. And so, uh, I mean, the sharing economy example, we keep going back to it because it's just, it's just sort of the paradigmatic one. But you, you nailed it when you said, like, there was a time when people would have said you were insane to say, I'm going to get in the back of a car with a stranger and just go somewhere um, just through an app, right? And now we basically throw our kids in these cars and say, like, it's like our, our you know, our, our virtual chauffeurs. Yeah. And how did that happen, right? It, it happened because we took a leap of faith and said, well, we're going to try to see how it works out. And then technology helped us solve that problem better than government regulation could. The answer to why we're safer now in those systems is because technology gives us a backstop and says, hey, we know exactly who the driver is. We've got their records. They've got our credit card information. You know, it's a, it's a, a different type of, of a trust mechanism that developed in the reputational economy. And, and that was a huge benefit for society. But here's why it's also beneficial. It means that governments don't need to worry about those rules and regulations anymore. Yeah. They can get back to focusing on things that they really should be doing. 
right? So this is about the proper allocation of government resources and their right taxpayer resources, which is why people should appreciate the benefits of how innovation can open up our horizons of new opportunities, including opportunities to maybe do things better or differently than we did in the past using government regulation. Um, that's my hope. It doesn't, again, I just want to reiterate one more time. It doesn't mean that all of the rules and regulations go yeah. away. Yeah. And, it, and sometimes it means that we'll, we will find that through the trial and error experimentation, things didn't work out right. I use the example in the book of like 23andMe, who said like, we're going to take a permissionless innovation approach to like genetic testing by mail. And the FDA and health officials said, you really should talk to us. You should really talk to us. 23andMe said, nope, we're just going to start sending out tests. And sure enough, they got a cease and desist notice in the mail. <laughs> and their product was pulled off the market for 18 months. And they had to retool the whole thing and come back with a lesser, uh, a more streamlined product. So there's an example of an area where they probably should have taken a more constructive approach with their government because government has an important role to play in making sure that people aren't being defrauded or hurt when it comes to genetic tests. Right. I think that's yeah. a pretty compelling case for FDA regulation. Um, on the other hand, there are many, many other examples of where the government is doing crazy, silly things. And I, I talk about like all the silly rules and regulations that uh, theoretically govern our smartphones, our, our, our mobile devices. Yeah. And yet every single day, tons of medical and health apps fly into the Apple and Google app stores for like health, fitness and tracking stuff. Well, there we've recognized that's a plus. That's a benefit. Yeah. We didn't need to have a bunch of silly rules there. We just needed to have competition and choice. And those things have sorted themselves out quite nicely. I am fairly confident that my health and fitness systems and trackers are pretty much on the up and up. Yeah. And if they're not, we still have unfair and deceptive practices authority. We still have lawsuits. We still have uh, the, the press pointing out where they're deficient and need to be uh, addressed. So that's a really nice balance I'm finding. But it only happened because government has shed some things that they used to do saying like, well, a smartphone really isn't a mobile medical device. Yeah. Um, whereby they can say like 23Me absolutely is. Yeah. And that yeah. probably needs more oversight. That's a, that's a fairly good trade-off. And also, both because the government has said, has made those distinctions, but secondly, I would think because it would just be impossible for the government to keep up with the pace. There you go. Yeah, that's right. This is a huge focus of my book, which, again, I stressed at the outset, my book is as much about sort of like practical empirical realities as it is normative judgments. Yeah. And I just try to go to great pains to point out to people like, even if you want to stop everything I'm talking about in this book, even if you hate the idea of evasive entrepreneurialism, even if you don't want more innovative freedom, what are you going to do about it when the genie gets out of the bottle? Yeah. Because the pacing problem, as you alluded to, Jennifer, refers to the fact that technological change is very, very fast today. It's linear and sometimes almost exponential. But policy change is incremental at best. And the problem for government is that the gap between those two is growing every single year. So you have to have a backup plan. You have to have other approaches and, and sensible policies to deal with that kind of a, a pacing problem world. And I think and hope that some agencies and regulators are coming around to acknowledging this. Uh, again, to go back to the FDA and agencies I've been very critical of in the past, when it comes to things like not only mobile medical devices and our smartphones, have they been more flexible? But when I talked about 3D printing earlier and 3D printing prosthetics, they could have tried to make an effort to shut that all down. Instead, they came out with sort of like best practices or guidelines for how people should take special care when developing 3D printed prosthetic limbs uh, through voluntary efforts or open source blueprints. They likewise did the same things for uh, various types of virtual uh, reality and online sort of medicine things and telemedicine. That's a sign to me that government understands they can't do it all. They yeah. can't regulate everything under a command and control, top-down, thou shall not approach. At some point, flexibility becomes essential or the so-called compliance paradox kicks in, whereby if government just doubles down on yesterday's, you know, set it and forget it policies, then technology will run and do an end run around. Yeah. And yeah. people will ignore those laws. Better to be in line with common sense and modern technological realities uh, than to try to just double down on yesterday's broken policies. It, it, amazingly, uh, I've spent a lot of time uh, actually pre-COVID uh, interacting with regulators very directly on all of the emerging technology topics that I discuss in the book, from things like blockchain and Bitcoin to 3D printing and virtual reality to uh, food entrepreneurialism, the sharing economy, so on and so forth, drones, driverless cars. 
And I'm sensing increasingly a real willingness to have a different type of conversation than we did in the past, where everything was based upon like, well, let's sort of open up a new notice of proposed rulemaking and have a multi-year study of whether or not these things called driverless cars or drones are a good idea. No, I think realistically they realize you have to work in real time now. And you have to have, and, and the, the, the word of the day that characterizes this is multi-stakeholderism, which is a real mouthful, but multi-stakeholderism refers to the idea that the best role government can play in many cases is to bring together diverse parties, bring them to the table, have them hammer out rough rules of the road for new emerging sectors and technologies, but that those rules not be preemptive and precautionary in character. Whether they be sort of guideposts or guidelines and best practices, as I said before, that can help make sure that we do have so-called responsible innovation, but that we have innovation, yeah. that we don't freeze it and we don't stop it. And so that is a new and interesting type of dialogue. Now, I will say there are plenty of critics on both sides. There are plenty of critics. And on the hard left, I get a lot of grief from people saying like, well, you're just out to gut all these agencies and all these laws. And no matter how much I say to, to extend the olive branch and show them that's not the truth, they're always going to feel that way because they believe the only solution is a big, bad law, one big overarching regulatory framework. And I often, I just say, I end that conversation pretty quickly by just saying like, well, you know what? Good luck to you. Um, get back to me when you get that done. And I don't think you will. And so if you want to have a backup plan or a second best approach, come talk to me. And I can talk about that on any front. I can talk about it on things like privacy, where for the better part of 15 years, people have tried to get a privacy bill of rights or a national privacy framework in America. Never happened. I can also talk about, on the other hand, where we need probably, and I agree we need, a driverless car bill at the federal level that would create sort of, sort of clear rules of the road for driverless cars and for drones. We don't get any of these things. Right. They just don't happen. So what's your backup plan, folks? Right. And I can say that to people on the left. I can say that to the people on the right. And if they want to meet in the center and have a constructive dialogue about technological governance going forward, then I'm here to have that dialogue. And my book's final three chapters, I hope, provide a blueprint for how we can get that job done. Yeah, now, I think that's, I, I have to say, I think that approach is fantastic because what what those people on either side far on the ends of the spectrum are left with is righteous indignation, but no practical progress, right? Bingo, bingo. Exactly and right. Yep. We are going to encourage people once again to get Evasive Entrepreneurs, Adam's new book, and to also check out Adam's other books. Uh, if people want to follow your work, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. Um, I'm fairly active on Twitter every single day. I, I'm, I'm just at, at Adam Thier. And you can also find me on other social uh, media websites. But uh, you can come to the Mercatus.org webpage and find a lot of my work there as well. Adam and I talked about the fact that it's always easy to look backwards and see how entrepreneurship and innovation have improved our lives. For instance, we don't really need to protect successful entrepreneurs after the fact. Once they've created something that we all really want, we're likely to demand protection of that. But what about before a new idea has taken hold or demonstrated its value? How do we make sure that entrepreneurs have the leeway and the freedom to be able to create things that we will eventually really want and that will improve our lives and the lives of those around us? Again, before we put new regulations in place that slow down entrepreneurs, we need to recognize that we might be choking off really important possibilities. So if you're in a discussion with someone you know and they say, well, these regulations protect people, you have to keep in mind that maybe what we do to protect people sometimes has adverse consequences. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.